Welcome to the Oil & Gas Elevate podcast. Each week, Sean McCoy and Eric Johnson share real-world case studies of businesses in oil and gas that are successfully navigating the complex environmental, social, and governance landscape. These are the stories that are driving the energy evolution. Here's a demonstration of some mental stimulation. We a nation making change. Let me frame the illustration. It's time for us to elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power here to innovate. Innovate. Elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power here to innovate. Welcome to the Oil & Gas Elevate Podcast. I'm your host, Sean McCoy, here with, as always with my co-host, Eric Johnson. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing good. How about yourself? Not too bad. We're in a unique situation that we're not typically in. Typically, it's just the two of us. Want to tell us a little bit about where we are? Yeah, so today we are recording from the API Houston luncheon in front of a bunch of very smart people wearing suits and ties. I feel like I slightly underdressed a little bit for this, but excited to be here, excited to talk to you today a little bit about and have kind of what we call a reflection episode, but then also talk to some true experts in the ESG field. Yeah, as you know, we, we go through this ESG podcast and the energy evolution that we talk about. We ourselves are actually going through a bit of an evolution. And that's part of this, this episode is to reflect on what we've learned, what we've seen, and kind of throw it out there as well as adding this new wrinkle, which is part of kind of, kind of to jump into a little bit. I, was, I just recently graduated from the University of Houston Energy School's ESG in Energy micro-credentialing program. And actually one of my instructors is here today, Carol. And so it was an opportunity to really kind of, it just upended what I thought I knew about ESG in terms of right. education. And so... Are, are you a teacher's pet? Is that what's <laughs> happened with this episode? Typ typically, yes. No, I'm, I'm one that goes up to the instructors during and after and wants to be their friends. And so Amy Mifflin was one of our instructors who really kind of helped me understand this need, this desire to learn more. And she really kind of right. ignited that in me and, and reach out to other people, not just ourselves as we talk about, it's not just our voices, but can we go and find out all those people that are on the kind of the cutting edge of what we're talking about? Right. And, and I will say this, as I've been a part of this journey, I've learned so much. My eyes have been opened to so many things I didn't understand, even within industry and even without, outside the industry that have changed my perspectives on a whole, a whole wide range of issues inside the ESG. You, know, you kind of think you know it all, but it seems like every week we're meeting new people that have new ideas and new thoughts, again, within the industry and without it. Yeah, so in that vein, is there anything recently, whether it's an episode or something you've read that's kind of stuck out to you? I think one of the most interesting episodes we did was the, the recent one we did with NOV and next year and kind of the EFRAC. And, you know, everybody talks about EFRAC. It's been around for a long time. And, and, but to have the discussion with Ian Hinkis over at Next Year and kind of talking about the future of where that's going, you know, talking about taking the fracking system, actually tapping them into Highline Power and this idea of, you know, we're actually going to run all these off windmills. And it's just, it's just this acceleration and this growth of the technology and, and, and this whole concept of electrification and how quickly the industry has pivoted. I, th I think that one of the things that I'm excited to talk about, especially from a branding standpoint, I think th the industry in some ways has dropped the ball in telling its stories and telling some of the amazing things it's doing. This is the whole reason you and I do this podcast in the case study format is to go, hey, these are real world tangible success stories. These are things where we have hit home runs in the industry. We want people to know about them. We want our industry friends to know about them. We want the world to know about them. But that was just amazing, you know, to think about, you know, EFRAC starting up just in the last few years. And pretty soon we're going to have systems that are tapped into high lines, running off windmills, go from the loud diesel, you know, well site to something that's much more quiet. It's just amazing to see that transition and that evolution. 
Well, also, it also makes me think of the Equinor ABB episode we did about the High Wind Tampon Project, which was the lar- is going to be the largest mm-hmm. floating offshore wind platform in the world, 88 megawatts, enough to, to power. And what are they powering? <laughs> Drilling platforms offshore. And so right. we have this, this amazing world where and it kind of leads into a little bit of where I'm the kind of the juxtaposition as I'm seeing the industry and as I'm seeing things kind of play out is there seems to be this appeal that we've, we're going to replace, that part of the transition is completely away from hydrocarbons in any capacity. Now, I know it's an old argument within our industry that that's not possible, but it sure seems like, and it, it made me think of, I've had discussions on Clubhouse, which is an app I've told you about. I've gotten, it's an amazing play. It's an amazing, I know it's another social media app and we don't need it and everybody gets, I don't want that, but it's an amazing medium because there's a lot of smart people, a lot of really, really intelligent people coming to platforms like that. And I think there's a lot of conversations happening on LinkedIn and places like that where where there's, it just feels like there's this adage that it's it's one versus the other and something we talk about a lot and that there's this element of conquer that we're gonna get rid of you know, the, the, the need for this. And, and I think big, that big part of that conversation I've heard comes around carbon and the carbon markets. And so when, when, I, when, when you hear about carbon, what do you think about? So it's become, it's kind of the buzzword. It's the anchor for influencing, in all honesty, for influencing most human opinion and decisions. That, that word is used often, I think in many respects, as a, as a scare word to kind of consolidate people's thoughts in a particular direction. I think the lovely ladies that are going to join us in a minute will have some strong opinions about the limited use of that word. But I do think when we think about how we move forward as an industry, there's no way to avoid that word. There's no way to avoid the connotations that it has to a large portion of the world. I, I was talking to somebody the other day and the question came to me is like, well, Eric, do you actually believe in climate change? You know, when you think about all the diversity inclusion and initiatives, do you believe in those things? And I was like, I go, we could have a, we could go down that rabbit hole if you want. We have a long conversation about that. But part of the problem is, and what we need to realize is that for 50% of the world, probably pushing closer to 60% of the world, it is flat out truth and they will make life decisions based on it they will make financial decisions based on it large institutions will push trillions of dollars in a different direction because they believe in those things as if they are 100 true and it doesn't even matter anymore and so i was like so as an industry i was like we need to quit worrying about nitpicking little little factual things that we may disagree with and realize that as we evolve and again you and i don't like the word transition it's evolution we're right. going to be a part of this solution going forward but we need to take that into account as we push forward. Yeah, so it, it's a nice segue into kind of what something as I got down this road, one of the things I noticed in places like Clubhouse and LinkedIn around carbon is that there tends to be a, an easy culprit or an easy kind of target for our questioning the efficiency of this, questioning the efficiency of whether or not we're going to be carbon neutral. And everybody loves to pick on China. I've heard, like I said, multiple conversations. And so I, I think there's a bit, and it usually leads with, and I went and did some research, that they added 30... You did research for this episode? <laughs> yeah, I did. I did wow. quite a bit, just to kind of... Well, I want to get it right. I didn't want to... You know, it goes out there in the world, the last thing you want to do is put your foot in your mouth. And so I'm trying... So I'm going off of what I could find. But, but what, it, what kept getting annotated was that they had added the most coal power in the whole world at right around 38 gigawatts of power. And that, you know, how are we going to be carbon neutral? How are we going to be carbon sensitive? How are we worrying about climate change if, if this country is adding the most gigawatts and it's all coal power, which is supposed to be even worse than anything? So what is that really saying about what we're doing? And what's really interesting about China is that they have another 88 gigawatts of coal under, under construction. So then if you, if you, so stay with me. And so if you add in that for what they already have, they're right at 247 gigawatts of power 
as a country, which is enough to supply all of Germany, to give you some context about what that is. And I think the problem is that what I've been seeing is it's a little bit of an incomplete argument because people usually stop there and say, see, they're using coal. So we haven't, so it's, it's kind of negates kind of the argument or gives people a reason to think that people aren't adhering to it. But I think it's a bit of an incomplete answer. So bear with me on this, as I said. As I was doing the research, I didn't know, and if you knew this, I apologize, but I, I thought China was a, maybe about a half again or a third again bigger than the US. It's the same size, pretty much in terms of acreage. But they got a billion more people than we do. Right? So you're talking about somebody who's doing something totally different in terms of scale that we're having to deal with. And what I also thought was interesting was in 2020, they also added the most wind power of any country in the world. So it's not like they're they right around 45 to, 50, 40, 45 to 50 gigawatts of power that they added. So while people are out saying all these bad things about China, I feel like they're part of this evolution of, hey, we have many, many people that are without power, many, many people that we, we don't have the same amount of power distribution everybody else has. We have a billion more people than just our country alone. And as they're trying to come up, they're adding as much as they can to the grid, if you will, just in power alone. And so it begs the question of like, are we, are we trying to, to find the loopholes? Are we trying to find the places where people aren't doing something? Or, are we, or is this really this collective issue? And then what do we do about those carbon emissions? What do we do to be net neutral? when there's a need to just, as we talked about in Ola, when we had Ola Bunami. That's what I was getting ready to go to. You know, when we hear, when we hear stories about, we had, for those of you that may remember from the previous podcast, we had a gentleman from Nigeria on who's a fellow podcaster, and he was born by candlelight, and his mother had to have a C-section and he, in Nigeria, and they, had, they didn't have basic power to, to turn on the TV and watch right. what they were doing. Yeah, so, so when we talk about, you and I have talked about this a little bit before, this, this idea, and it's, it's kind of a North American, European problem where we have this kind of, entitlement to the energy consumption that we have. And I don't think we realize it in all honesty. And I, I'll be the first to admit I'm one of the worst. I have three teenagers who don't even know that the light switches go down. <laughs> so so I get that. But when we think about that conversation with Oli was amazing. You hear his story about, you know, was he even going to make it? You know, they had no power at the hospital, born by candlelight. It was, you know, kind of this amazing journey that he went through. But we think about all of Africa. We think about all of India. We think there's large portions of China that you just discussed, those people have just as much right to the power, to the mobility, to the health and safety, to the hospitals that we do. And this idea that we can bring billions of people online, but not only bring them online, but at our energy consumption level for, for an energy equity kind of argument, right? And do that purely with solar farms and windmills is, is honestly at, at our current technological level of kind of a pipe dream, right? So. I think people want to point to China and point to all those coal plants, but you know how else are they going to bring all those people online in the short term? So I agree with you. It's a problem that's not going to be easily solved. And I do know that as we get into the next segment with, with Caitlin and, and Leanne, that there's, because part of the question becomes, well, how do you do this collectively? And this is where I think that that energy model of us, this, this consortium of answers, it's not right. just this one or not that one. It's just, it's, what are we doing to make all this happen and how are we doing this effectively so that we get this base per capita kind of like consumption around energy. Well, and if you think about, you know, in the spring, I think in the spring, the fall in Texas, when the real high loads are down, most of our electricity comes from wind. I mean, it's actually a story I, I don't think most people know. Now, of course, two months ago, we had a little bit of problem with our electricity, but, you know, it's amazing to see kind of that transformation in Texas. And I don't think people realize that. I, I think your average person on the West Coast or East Coast would never know that those kinds of amazing things are going on in Texas.
Yeah, and so I think it's, it's part of that. So I think the challenge going forward, because the other thing about that argument is there seems to be such this passioned idea that we're being replaced and then the expectation and it, I think the atmosphere of almost, whether it's politically or anywhere else, that kind of like there's, this, there's been this change of command and so we're not going to be using these assets anymore and so they'll just quietly go away. And so I, it, to me it's just kind of a concern about wanting to be, you know, I guess, I don't know if respectful is the right way or abide by, but you want to be aware of. Like we, these are issues. You know, there's are, there are these other issues that are part of that energy consumption part. What are we doing with these things and how are we addressing that in such a way that we're being good stewards of the assets that we have as well? Right. And, and I think also part of that story, and one of the things that you and I hit on almost every episode is just kind of workforce transition issues. Mm -hmm. So many friends of mine that have lost their jobs in the last year and haven't come back. And, and to go back to the ABB Equinor kind of offshore wind farm issue, you know, the, the guest that we had on from Equinor from Texas, she had grown up in oilfield services, spent years and years at Halliburton. And now she's basically working on putting in the wind farms in Empire off the in New York coast. So she had taken that skill set, she had taken all that engineering skill and now has transitioned it into, you know, a new opportunity, a new, a new place for her to go. And, and that, I think that was just a great story. She was so excited about that transition. And I think there is a lot of opportunity there as we think about the big umbrella of energy and a partnership and an evolution and working together. That it's not just how we're going to generate the electricity, but it's also how we're going to keep some of the amazing people in the industry employed. Yeah. So, so as as we you know we're, we value our listeners like nothing else, and so it's as we go through this, we just hope what you hear from us is just you know we're we're not saying we have all the answers. There's some things that we're learning, and as we go through these challenges, we think that the the best way in regards to those things, I'm talking about on LinkedIn and Clubhouse. What I have seen that has given me hope, and what I get really really excited about is that there are people willing to have conversations, people that, that just being in there and saying you're from oil and gas, like in some of these places and some of these people, they've never even talked to somebody. And so I would encourage anybody out there, if it's easy to have a conversation with people in the industry who we know, right? but it's something else to have to talk to somebody who doesn't know anything except what they've seen on TV or anything else like that. So I would encourage people to go out and have a conversation, challenge yourself, challenge them, but do so in a way that can be constructive and not not that us versus them kind of mentality. Yeah, for sure. Clubhouse. I know how much you love Clubhouse <laughs> and you've gone down that hole. I need to join you there more. And maybe I'll wear one of my cowboy hats on so I can be that stereotypical Texan. You could do that. On. You could do that. <laughs> you, I'll send you an invite. All right. Well, so with that, we're going to take a break. And in between, when we come back, after we uh, hear a little bit from our sponsor, Hewlett Packard Enterprise, we're going to talk to Caitlin and Leanne and get their perspective on this and some other things as well. So stay tuned. Awesome. Hey, Sean, a quick note about our sponsor, Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Through HPE's extensive activity and experience in the oil and gas industry, they have identified six key areas to enable your company to get ahead of the competition. Cloud-based consumption, advanced analytics, secure mobility solutions, physical and cybersecurity offerings, asset virtualization, and application modernization. So with that, do you want to find out more about one or all of those solutions? Go to www.hpe.com forward slash engage forward slash IOT or click on the link in the show notes for more information and to download their white paper about these subjects. Well, welcome back to the second part of our Accelerate segment and episode. As I mentioned, we're here joined by Caitlin Allen and Leanne Bishop to tell you a little bit about them. So Caitlin Allen is the president and CEO of Global Affairs Associates. It's a boutique corporate sustainability consultancy focusing on ESG, which she founded in 2013. She also worked for the State Department, Houston Public Media, and Marathon, working in this 
CSR ESG world as well. She's a proud alum of Georgetown University in Trinity. She's also a native Houstonian and currently resides here as well. Leanne Bishop is a senior ESG web strategist with ESG Reporting Partners, over 25 years of agency experience in branding and creative services, management, broadcast production, print production, and interactive strategies. Ladies, thank you so much for coming on and being the first ones as inspired by our friend Amy and uh, the course to come on and give us a little bit of your perspective around ESG. Thank you for having us. And this is a really unique event, so we're happy to be here. Yeah. We're glad to have you. So as we, we talked before a little bit about this and the other thing, and, and, and Caitlin, I kind of want to start with you, one of the questions we talked about before. Even ESG, as, a, as, a, as this acronym that we keep hearing about that we're probably as sick of as podcasts and carbon and everything else, it doesn't always mean the same thing to everybody, does it? Mm-hmm. That's right. I mean, I could speak a little bit to that in terms of architecting your report and architecting your business model for that. So literally, E is environment, S is social, G is governance. But there's so much more than just carbon for environment. You know, there's biodiversity and land use. There's water management, waste management. You know, are you, you know, tilling your waste into the soil or are you properly sequestering it? You know, so there's a variety of different areas to think about when you're looking at environment, a variety of different areas in social, obviously, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, but also just employee relations, you know, human capital management. So there's safety. Safety. And then, you know, when you think about governance, you think about, you know, all of the different things that are on your balance sheet, but I think also off your balance sheet, you know, how much do your board of directors communicate to your HSE teams? You know, what type of steering committees do you have? How transparent are you? All of those things are important. And I think that, you know, I'm a big believer in panic attacks and having a panic attack first and getting that out of your system when you first hear the word sustainability or ESG, because it's like, okay, get that out of your system so we can focus and think of what is material to us, what matters to us in these different spaces. Because if you take those prisms of E, S, and G, and you kind of put them all together, almost like a Venn diagram or a kaleidoscope, you can start to focus and hone in on what really you can change, you know, don't tell me what you can't do, but tell me what you can do in terms of, you know, how can we better run our business? How can we manage against risk or manage risk itself? All of those different types of things of, you know, stuff that you're already doing, really, don't you think? Because, I mean, when we talk about, well, you can speak to that in terms of what is on a balance sheet and what is not. But, I mean, when I think of ESG, I don't think of it as like this, you must report this because so-and-so reported this. I think you must report this because it's the right thing for you. And you're framing your argument and you're passionate about this. And you can make a difference at XYZ Company doing what you're doing right now, you know? Yeah. And I, I always like to start with my definition of ESG, which is ESG could be anything that's not on your balance sheet that could affect your business. And so, you know, everyone's all up in arms about it and having heartburn, but it's really just such a simple, innocuous concept. It's just how do we categorize? Like if we were to step back and say, you know, here's a list of a thousand types of risk 
or a thousand potential issues that could impact your company. And we were to categorize those into four categories, what would they be? They would be financial, environmental, social, and governance. That's all it is. ESG is just anything (laughs) that can affect your business. And that's where the concept of materiality is important. SEC lawyer definitions aside. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know why everybody looked can, at me. <laughs> um, that's, a, that's something we can get into the nuance of, but, but really like it could literally be anything. So what is it for you? What is it for your industry? What are those topics that are financial, environmental, social, or governance related that might impact the ability of your business to operate and profit? Mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of the simple, it's just three of the four categories of things that could affect your business. And everyone knows this, right? I mean, look at look at Enron. We had a renaissance in governance practices after all of that happened and policies as well. You know, it's just so much more. But I think that the reason that we see a lot of people, both in the media and industry, conflating ESG with energy transition, climate, carbon decarbonization, everyone's conflating them and calling that ESG. We have to stop doing that because the ESG concept itself is very broad and very innocuous. Well, and very it's open. It's the other, yeah. right? And so if you are in an industry that is a high emitter of greenhouse gases, then that, you know, that some of the e-topics that we're talking about, climate-related risk, you know, energy transition or energy evolution as these, as our co-hosts are saying, (laughs) yes, whatever it is, that is probably likely to be material to your company, right? Mm -hmm. Which is why it's, it's kind of taken a lot of the center of attention, but there are many other things happening that, you know, fall more into governance that are just as important, if not in some cases, more important for certain investors. And I can give you an example of that right away, Marathon Oil, which is one of our clients, they just, just announced that they are going to reduce executive pay and board pay by, I believe it's 25%. That's been a governance issue in this industry for so many years. Executive compensation generally is, as we see rising inequality, but specifically in this industry. And one of the reasons for that is executive compensation is based on peer group evaluations, right? So if the whole peer group is out of line with the rest of different industries, then the whole peer group is saying, well, my peers doing the same thing. And a lot of investors have been really upset with that. And so, I mean, that's just one example, right, of a G issue, a governance issue that is definitely at the forefront of mind for a lot of investors and might be even more important to some investors than the climate-related issues. So, yeah, I think that's, if I had one message to take away, it is <laughs> stop conflating ESG and energy transition and climate stuff. We have to keep them separate if we're going to get this right. And so ESG itself, very basic concept. Yeah, and I would add yeah. sustainability to that as well, because a lot of people will come, come to us and call us and we'll have conversations. Well, we want to be sustainable. We already are sustainable, whether it's a packaged good company or energy services or what have you. And it's it's not about your carbon footprint. Sustainable is sustainable over the long term. Yeah. It's go back to the core definition of sustainability in terms of we want to be able to sustain a global pandemic. 
We want to be able to sustain social change. We want to last. We want to be here 100 years from now. So it's it's just as much about your business being sustainable and your business strategy. And I think that really, you know, the beauty of ESG is that you can really uncover your business strategy and how you're going to navigate this evolution, you know, through these topics. Once you start looking, I mean, I think that it's, you know, it's really exciting. It's a great opportunity. I think that's the opportunity side of things as well, right? Is that, and a lot of people, like you're saying earlier, just there, it feels like the industry is under attack. And I think there's definitely, I always say there's always going to be haters. There's definitely people that are wanting to attack. But when we're doing ESG reporting, that's not our audience, right? So actually a lot of people are happy and relieved to know that the vast majority of ESG investing I'm doing quotes with my fingers. Air, air, air quotes. Air quotes. Okay. <laughs> the vast majority is actually not exclusionary screening. And I think getting into that, that's actually maybe one more thing I'll add on this question, which is if we look at responsible investment as a continuum, at the very shallow end of the pool, that's credit to Kevin Pasha. I can't mm. take credit for that one. The shallow mm. end of the pool is exclusionary screening, where you're just saying, I don't want alcohol-based stocks in my portfolio. Mm -hmm. I don't want this in stocks, or mm -hmm. I don't want fossil fuels, yeah. I don't want whatever tobacco. it is. Yeah. Tobacco, weapons, whatever it is. That's exclusionary screening. That is not ESG investing. The next layer into the pool is ESG integration, where a company, an investment firm, is integrating ESG-related criteria and factors into the decision-making process about whether or not to buy stock, to pick a stock. That's the actual, actually the vast majority. Then you get deeper into the pool and you get to these, you know, targeted funds. So perhaps, you know, a lot of faith-based funds, like if you, you get a Catholic fund, you know, will have certain <sighs> parameters promoting Catholic values. If you do a gender diversity fund, they're picking stocks where there's strong gender balance on the management teams, for example, and female leaders and sort of trying to elevate elevate women. There's different types of specific funds you can do. There are clean energy funds, right? Mm -hmm. There's another specific example where there's a specific theme with the fund. And then the very, say, deepest is would be called impact investing, where an investor is seeking a specific type of environmental or social return alongside a financial investment. So if you look at those four as a continuum, then actually the majority is not that exclusionary. The majority is just integrating ESG factors into an investment decision, which is probably really just good common sense. Yeah, you know? managing risk. <laughs> exactly. It's just adding another layer of risk. Mm -hmm. So, and I always like to use the example of, you know, a solar panel manufacturer, which a lot of people that are not familiar with this field might think, oh, well, it's automatic. Oh, it's clean energy. So it's going right in the, all that meets all the ESG criteria. Not necessarily, yeah. right? Not necessarily. It might, you know, be part of a clean tech fund, that does not mean it has been screened for E, S, or G risk specifically. And if you look at the supply chains, of course, of solar panel manufacturers, it's where manufacturing happens, it's mining, there's all kinds of specifically social risks and governance as well related to corruption, but social risks related to human rights abuses, all kinds of forced labor, all of those types of issues 
that if they are not properly screened for, mm -hmm. make that investment essentially, you know, it could be a very poor ESG investment without mm -hmm. that type of risk screening. And so I, I like to make that point that out that when we talk about ESG, we're talking about that that second category of investing where there's just an additional layer of risk screening. And many, many, many energy companies fit very well into ESG screened. Right. Yeah. Fence. You know, yeah. one of the things, and I'm sorry, one of the things I just wanted to mention this to you because it made me think of this and the bat, I think it's bat.com, but it's British American tobacco. Com. RJ Reynolds, talk about having a target on your back and in terms of, you know, trying to report and what have you. They have one of the highest ESG ratings of anything in the UK, and they are really impactful and really making a change in terms of, you know, how they support, you know, agriculture and farming and all of these different things. So it's not, you know, to say that, oh, well, you're this bad global energy corporation or this bad tobacco company. I don't think that that's, you know, really the issue at all. I think it's how do you manage your business? How do you treat people? How do you treat employees and other stakeholders? And how are you positioning yourself for a three-year plan, five-year plan, 10-year plan? Those are the things in terms of governance and all of that yummy goodness. You know, I think that that's critical. That's, yeah. And that's broadly speaking for ESG investing, absolutely. And then I think in this sector, what, where, we, where it takes us is, right, okay, well, this, this sector is a high-emitting sector. And, you know, where do, how does that fit into the global conversation about getting to net zero emissions by 2050? Because that's where all the money is going. All mm -hmm. of that is where all of the money is going. Absolutely. So how do, how do you fit your business into that going forward? And like I, said, I always joke, I'm like, here's my my little Houston, Texas Petroleum Club messages. Y'all, this is Houston. Let's make some money off of this. Yes. You know, it's an opportunity. The energy Absolutely. transition is a $26 trillion opportunity for the global economy. And how are we going to partake in this? Yeah. Right? And help solve the problem. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I wanted to follow up a little bit on the investor side. And I, I know I sent to y'all, the SEC Division of Investment Management came out mm -hmm. and came out and said, we've been scratching our heads a little bit looking at, you know, what the the funds are saying or doing. And, you know, sometimes you can go and look at one of these clean funds or a green fund, and it turns out they own just as much ExxonMobil stock as the index fund does, mm -hmm. right? The regular S&P 500 index fund does. And so there's, there's been questions that have come in around that. So I think we're going to see the SEC from all standpoints kind of partner with all the private ordering we've seen and push aggressively into let's let's find a framework that works. Let's find a way to bring everybody together so we can actually generate useful information. And the most useful information is comparable information. We need to have people that can That's actually right. compare company A to company B to company C. So as we talk about the evolution of ESG reporting and as people are going through this process and also ESG messaging, right? It's not mm -hmm. only the report, but it's how you tell your story, mm -hmm. Leanne, as you like to say. Mm -hmm. Where are we in that process? If there's somebody out there that's kind of, to use your pool metaphor, they've just kind of dipped their toe in the shallow end of the pool, but they, they need to, you know, go ahead and jump out in the middle. What are some of the, the hurdles and things you would tell people they need to just to overcome and just start pushing in the right direction? That's a pretty broad question, but yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna let you run I with will, it. I will run with it. I always try to help folks understand that there's, you know, maybe two very broad categories of how companies should be thinking about ESG reporting and communications. 
One is your own operational footprint. So in your operations, what are the main ESG and financial factors that you need to tell in your story and you should be reporting on so that, like you said, investors can make apples to apples comparisons. There's that broadly. And then there's this other side of things, which is the marketing commercialization opportunities of how do you actually identify what is your E, S, or G advantage or more than one, hopefully. And then how do you communicate about that to this new generation of customers, many of which now have net zero goals and targets. So that's, you know, separating those two is a great place to start. And then for reporting, you know, this it's a wild west still. They're all saying that they want to, all the frameworks are saying that they're going to get together and be friends. But I think this jury's still out on which one will win out. I do think that the Task Force on Climate Related Financial Disclosure, TCFD framework, very, very, you know, big financial heavyweights are behind that one. And the reason they are is because they want companies to think about the risks and opportunities both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's probably one that I can say will probably become a requirement for companies above a certain threshold of revenue. That's already going to be the case in the UK. And then on the other side for general ESG reporting, Sustainability Accounting Standards Board or or SASB, they modeled themselves after FASB, the Financial Accounting Standards Board. It has gained a lot of ground in recent years and and they're definitely a floor when it comes to reporting. I mean, if you want to go minimalist, you do SASB. It's pretty minimalist. Yeah. And it's a good, so it's a good, it's a good starter. starter. Yeah. yeah, it's a good, it's a great starter. And, you know, I mean, I think Larry Fink was the keynote speaker at the SASB Symposium in mm-hmm. November, October, November. So Larry Fink, head of BlackRock. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, ladies, thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to us today for our first episode. Appreciate you being a part of that. And thank you to API for, for hosting us and to Russell. And with that, everybody, we'll wrap this up. Thanks, and we'll see thank you all. next week. Thanks, guys. Hey, everybody. It's Savannah from OGGN, and here are the events on deck for April 2021. This month, we have three events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. First up, we have our in-person event, which is the Spring Pitch Party focused on clean tech. It'll be hosted at the Canon on April 6th. Next, we have our two online events, the University of Houston PES Career Fair on April 8th and the CSPG GeoWomen eTalk on April 20th. Other than these events, OGGN may be hosting some more live streams this month, so make sure to check out our Facebook, LinkedIn, or OGGN.com for more information about any of the live streams or events we have coming up. If you have any questions about these events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for April. I hope you guys have a great month, and thanks for tuning in. On behalf of the Elevate podcast team, thank you so much for clicking play and bringing to life these amazing stories. We hope this elevated your perspective and serves you well as you navigate understanding ESG and the energy evolution. We are so grateful for your time and kindly ask that you rate and review the show on Apple iTunes, which is a great way to help us grow. The best way to support the work we are doing is to tell a friend about it, ask them to listen, and share with others what you've learned from listening to our guests. Lastly, we want to invite you to reach out to us for any comments, suggestions, or just to connect. You can do that through my email, sean.mccoy at oggn.com. I'd love to hear from you and what you think of our podcast. Be safe, and we look forward to bringing you another episode 
next week. Here's a demonstration of some mental stimulation. We a nation making change. Let me frame the illustration. It's time for us to elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power here to innovate. Innovate. Elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power here to innovate. Ha!